Welcome to the 41st episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. Here we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. In the description, you will find a link to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. There is also a link to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and you'll see our Twitter handle. There is also a link to a YouTube clip that features the Known Pleasures theme song that some of our listeners have been asking for. And now it's over to Patrick to introduce the subject of today's podcast. In 1988, U2 seemed to believe their roots lay with the Beatles, Hendrix, Billie Holiday and Bo Diddley. The album and film Rattle and Hum saw them referencing the above, as well as recording with Dylan, then B.B. King at Sun Studio in Memphis. But where were their actual influences in this telling of the tale? The Rottens and Viciouses, the Curtises and Hooks, the Strummerses. We're here today to investigate the early days of these four unlikely lads from Dublin. By 1984, U2 had already been on an epic creative odyssey. They journeyed from raw, nascent post-punk at the Baggett Inn in Lower Baggett Street to the spiritual yearning of Boy and October through the anthemic war and the ambient and ambitious Unforgettable Fire. And they were still a couple of years away from their first number one album in the US and a lengthy stint as arguably the world's most loved and loathed band. So how did it all come to pass? At Known Pleasures, with Wings Like Eagles, we three take a long, hard look at you two. Guys, before we start, I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that I made a teaser video for this yeah, podcast. That was great. I loved your pointing skills. <laughs> when you're pointing at the different albums, Boy, October, like you, you got them all right as they appeared on screen. <laughs> well, you know, I've watched enough TikTok content to be able to film myself and point at things. I think. <laughs> Um, but I suggested in this teaser video that, uh, and for comic effect, that you two broke up after four albums. But I was wondering whether we should approach this podcast as if we're living in this alternate universe where you two have broken up. Bono leaves in 84 to host a music show. The Edge creates music for films. And maybe Larry and Adam um, form a U2 covers band, perhaps. <laughs> but, um, but the reason why I'm suggesting this is that you 2 have a lot of baggage, and I think it's important for us three to talk about these albums without prejudice, because um, the latter music is a little divisive, and we should remind people that U2's early years were an interesting addition to the post-punk mm. canon. Do you agree? Hmm. No, I refuse to do that. <laughs> doesn't really leave me anywhere to go. <laughs> At the end of the podcast, you can say really bad things loose. about their later music market. No, no, I think that's a really good idea because people think about U2 and Bono as this massive entity, kind mm. of forgetting that they started out doing some really interesting stuff and kind of made their way early on in the piece. So I guess that's what we're talking about because we don't go past 84, 85, so we won't be talking about any of those massive, massive albums. Mm-hmm. So I think that's good, a good way of framing it, Graham. I think so. So, Patrick? Well, I think the one of the interesting things about doing the podcast, what I love about doing the podcast, is that we sort of investigate the political landscape in different countries. And so the US situation where punk kind of emerged in CBGBs and so on, and in England, in Britain, how it emerged from there, and in Australia, we've done some bands there too, but... This is the first Irish band we've done. And Ireland was more or less in the midst of civil war at the time. I mean, the Republic of Ireland, Dublin, wasn't, but like 60 miles, 100 kilometres away, was Northern Ireland where things had been pretty grim for a long time. 
And that was the landscape that you two emerged from, and it was not a hopeful place. It was a no future kind of <laughs> kind of place to be. It was a really tricky kind of situation and a depressing situation for a bunch of young kids from Dublin. Although two of them were born in um, England. They're not uh, yeah. an Irish band, really. Only half an Irish band. Yeah, yeah. So that's where you two kind of emerged from, and in isolation as well, because the kind of classic thing was in London in 75, 76, 77, all these kind of people being influenced by each other and Susie and the Banshees and um, the Clash and the Sex Pistols and so on. In Ireland was absolutely the middle of nowhere, mm. relatively speaking. Were these four lads who happened to go to the same school, Mount Temple Comprehensive, yep. in the uh, north side of Dublin. And a rather fateful notice was placed on the notice board by a fellow called Larry Mullen Jr. And it was Larry Mullen Sr. who said, you know what you should do? I'm, I'm trying not to do the Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> we should point out that you're allowed to do the Irish accent. <laughs> My mother, who was Irish, would be extremely unimpressed by oh. <laughs> the quite bogus Irish accent that, that I would put on. But Larry Mullen Sr. said, you know what you should do, Larry Mullen Jr.? You should put up... And that's what he called him. <laughs> what you should do, Larry Mullen Jr. <laughs> He's quite a formal fella, Larry Mullen Sr. <laughs> um, you should put up a sign saying, what was it, musicians wanted for band? Something like that. That's how these four young lads, what, 15, 16 years of age, came together, describing themselves or naming themselves as feedback to start with. Because what, that was what the year was this, Patrick? Uh, was it 1976? And, uh, yeah, they uh, feedback was apparently the predominant sound that was heard in the room, so that's why they called themselves feedback, and then uh, soon changing their name to uh, The Hype. The hype, yes. Yeah, they started playing in church halls and that kind of thing. 50p entry it was to see the hype, which is pretty cheap for the hype. <laughs> so That's not bad. Come and dance to the hype at the Hoth uh, Church Hall. Wasn't that band name pinched from one of David Bowie's early incarnations? Mm. I haven't heard that. Well, come but to known pleasures to learn. Right? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> They garnered quite a following at this point. They had a following even before they'd sort of completed their first rehearsal. Apparently at their very first rehearsal, which was at Larry Mullen Jr. and Larry Mullen Sr.'s house, <laughs> um, Bono says that Larry offered us a lesson in the mystique of the rock star because there were girls giggling outside the house. Okay. So Larry offered a lesson in the mystique. He turned the garden hose on them. So <laughs> Didn't they um, have their first uh, rehearsal in the kitchen? Yeah, yeah, that's and there right. were there were six members at that point. Uh, yeah, well, uh, the members of the band who, who we haven't mentioned were um, Dave Evans and Richard Evans. One would become the Edge, and Adam Clayton, who was quite a posh-sounding English chap. I thought it might have been an, five, but was it six? There was another guitarist as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there were three guitarists. Were mm. So Dick Evans and Dave were guitarists, and wow, that was must have been a hell of a racket. <laughs> and uh, yeah, early on, yeah, I think they were influenced by the likes of uh, television, the Stranglers, those those kind of bands, Sex Pistols. And their big initial breakthrough was in a provincial city, Limerick, 
mm. where they won a talent contest, a, a battle of the bands. Is this in March 78? Yep. 500 pounds they won, which, which is, is not to be sniffed at. That's a lot of money yeah. for 1978. That's two years after forming. It's not bad. And, uh, yeah, they won a recording session. Which, a demo session, demo I think, session with CBS with, Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would like to say about Adam that he was a little bit different because he was the only atheist mm. or agnostic anyway. In the band, he was very much English. Mm. And Bono says that Adam had a wild, curly, blonde afro, Afghan coat made from sheep that looked like they were still alive, and a <laughs> Pakistan 76, as in Pakistan 1976, T-shirt to keep it real. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing he said to the other kids at Mount Temple Comprehensive on his first day in, you know, like year nine or something, first thing he said to the other kids was, where might I find the smoking room? <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving Adam Clayton. He's already yeah. my favourite member of the band. Like he's, you want to be in a band with this guy, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So he he came from a posh English upbringing. Yeah, his his dad was in the military, so I think yeah, very very much middle class. And mm-hmm. uh, he and the Edge were friends prior, maybe to being at school together. Mm. But in any case, Adam quickly became, I don't know whether he was actually appointed manager of U2, but he had business cards printed to that effect, (laughs) which I think is great. Adam Clayton, manager of U2. And there's no indication in any kind of book that I've read that he actually sought permission from the rest of the band too. (laughs) He just went ahead and did it. He's he's a good man. Yeah, yeah. Organised. But they were very fortunate and it was one of those things like the Beatles to find the person who actually can coordinate the whole thing and just save you from all the kind of problems that, you know, bands mm. endlessly get. We have finding uh, Paul McGuinness in mid-1978-ish, mm. I think it was. And, uh, yeah, so he took control of the operation. Paul McGuinness was managing a band called Spud. <laughs> which, <laughs> and apparently there was a bit of a famine going on at the time. Was there, was there only the one band in Ireland called Spud? <laughs> yes. Weren't common. <laughs> So I don't know if you've heard the recording session, the results of that recording session that the, they the did. The three-track EP you're talking about? Uh, well, there was, uh, I think it was like one song they did prior yeah. to the three-track EP, and it's pretty terrible. I think yeah. I've heard it, so I will play a bit of it. Mm. But it, it, was, it was a bit of a thrash number. Yeah, but then they did end up doing the three-track EP, as you say. September 79. Three tracks being Out of Control, Boy, Girl and Stories for Boys. Is Mm. that right? Can I just quickly say Out of Control is really funny if you get a chance to listen to it, Graham, because it completely speeds up all the way through I was going to mention that it starts off at around 150 (laughs) BPM. And by the time he sings, it's at 160. There's no click track in those days because (laughs) it just keeps getting faster and faster. But even in songs that don't have a click track, I mean, there's going to be a certain human element where the BPM is going to vary a bit. Mm. But this is noticeable (laughs) in a very short (laughs) amount of time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Sorry. Yeah, and Bono has described Larry as a drum machine and said that, you know, he could have been in craft work, but I don't think that was evident early on. No, (laughs) I think it took a while for him to become a, a good drummer. Oh, that's right. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, that EP in September 79, which was fully 18 months after they won that talent contest. So Mm. it wasn't the kind of overnight sensation thing. Things happen more slowly for you to them with other bands. What did you guys think of the EP? Pretty nondescript. I mean, I thought it was fine. CBS, when they heard the EP, they said the band is great, but they need 
to get rid of the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> because they weren't that impressed with it, they only issued it in Ireland. Oh, right. I can kind of see why they did only issue it in mm. Ireland. What do you guys think? Well, I, I thought the first song, clearly The Edge, was listening to John McGeeogh. Mm. He was a big fan of magazine. I thought Out of Control was very magazine. Stories for Boys opens up with that killing joke, love like blood guitar line. And it's been used by many people over the years. I think even Tom Petty used it. And Boy Girl, I thought, was very much like the Buzzcocks a little bit. It's quite mm. punky, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought it was a decent start. And then February 1980, another single, Another Day. Again, a little bit nondescript. They're still kind of trying mm. to find their feet. Yeah. And they hadn't yet found that kind of magic element which was about to happen, mm. courtesy of a, a delay unit. <laughs> and then they decided that their next song might be maybe recorded, uh, produced by a fellow called Martin Hannett. Mm. So they travelled to the UK extraordinarily kind of barged in on the recording sessions for Love Will Tear Us Apart. <laughs> if you can picture you two in the midst yes. of the Joy, Joy Division recording Love Will Tear Us Apart, it's just such a weird kind of meeting of minds. I didn't realise that, but that, that it was that session. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, Martin came to Dublin and they recorded the 11 o'clock TikTok single and Bono, the reports are quite varied about Martin Hannett mm. when they were recording that song because Ian Curtis had just he died. Just, yeah, committed suicide. So it was within like days or weeks of Ian's death. Bono said that Martin Hannett looked like Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, I think that was the, what, Tom? <laughs> I've forgotten his Oh, I don't know which one it was. <laughs> Tom with the scarf. I've forgotten his surname. I thought all Doctor Who's had scarves, <laughs> didn't they? He had the longest scarf. Feel free to cut that part out, Graham. Tom Baker. Um, and Paul McGuinness said, Martin was pretty moody. I remember him coming out of my bathroom with a bottle of cough meds. He said, is this stuff legal in Ireland? And promptly drank the whole bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam said, quite differently, Martin was a bit like a big cuddly garden gnome. He was very laid back. But with hindsight, I think he was probably out of it all the time. There was a fair amount of smoking of dope. And I don't want to joke too much about a time that was obviously really difficult for Martin, you know, with Ian having passed away. But it sounds like a Joy Division recording. It's got those mm. kind of Joy Division drums. Uh, that's about the only thing Joy Division-ish about it, would you say? Yeah, it was more the production, I think. Mm. And then there was another single... Before their first album, so they were they were doing a whole bunch of stuff. A day without me, August nineteen eighty, produced by Steve Lillywhite. Is this when they'd signed finally with Island Records? Mm, I think so. This is also around about the time when the Edge found his sound. Mm. Bono had apparently said to the Edge, "Have you heard the start of Pink Floyd's Animals?" You've got to get one of those Echo units. The Cure are playing with one, but I think there's more to get out of it. And so mm. Edge bought an Electro Harmonics Deluxe Memory Man analog delay pedal. Mm. 
the uh, memory man will be crucial on boy, so man meets boy. If you get a chance to hear, I think it's a demo of A Day Without Me, which is really slow and dubby, and it's completely different to the single version, but it's worth having a listen to. Right, right. The other thing I'd like to point out about this song is it's supposed to be about Ian Curtis killing himself, but it's quite cheery. Even the guitar <laughs> riff. Da, 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 yeah, it's better. It doesn't really strike me as a song about someone killing themselves, but apparently it is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, the hmm. Irish have a different view to death than a lot of people. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to a wake. <laughs> Not an Irish wake. <laughs> uh, the uh, crack is mighty. Does it yeah. involve a lot of drinking? Mighty crack? Oh, a little bit. Shall we go to boy? Is it time for Boy? The album. Yes. Mm. What do we think of Boy? Well, uh, when you said you think The Edge found his sound on that song, when I listen to Boy, I think that The Edge, you can hear him gradually finding it because he, he tries a lot of different things. Like the classic Edge sound is on the electric co, I think. It's very rhythmic. Mm. He uses a delay rhythmically. He plays it quite uniquely. And in another time and another place, he uses a lot of harmonics. I read this quote from The Edge where he said, uh, the biggest difference between me and other guitar players is that I don't use effects to colour my guitar parts. I create guitar parts using effects, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. On this early album, you can really hear the influences, like on I Will Follow. They were trying to replicate an old Susie and the Banshees number called Jigsaw Feeling. I think it's more like Public Images first single. Well, yeah, it's like that too. It's the opposite of that yeah. two chord thing. Yeah. So public Image by Public Image was a huge influence on the band. Mm. So, What year did this come out, Patrick? It came out in October. Their favourite month, October 1980. Yes, they love October, don't they? So Produced by Steve Lillywhite? Yep, that's what, right. What, and what had he been working on? He'd been working on been working with Peter Gabriel, hadn't he? And Susie and the Banshees. And Susie and the Banshees. And the Psychedelic First. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I just have one thing to say about I Will Follow. There can only be two singles in that I can think of in post-punk history that feature xylophone. <laughs> this being one of them, it's Hong Kong call. Garden being You've made some big calls, Mark. I can't think of any others off the top of my head. Certainly not debut singles. They did a lot of weird things on I Will Follow. That apparently they had a, an upturned bicycle and they were using <laughs> cutlery to hit the spinning wheel of the bicycle <laughs> and Bono was smashing bottles. They recorded the drums in a stairwell, I think, yeah. near the reception area, but they could only record them when the receptionist wasn't working <laughs> because the phone would ring. If you're going to answer the phone, do it in time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I won. <laughs> That's the sort of thing Martin Hand had been doing, though, as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah, that's right. Steve Lillywhite was apparently in experimental mode because he'd just finished working with, with Peter Gabriel. Oh, that's, okay. that's the way that, that, that U2 tells the story. Yeah. Wasn't there some controversy about the cover? 
Yeah. Featuring a young boy without a shirt and was the youngest sibling of Googie, who was was um, Bono's best mate. And, yeah, I think in the US they issued it with a different cover because it was considered controversial. And they, I mean, again, as, as, as you two tells the story, they'd never even kind of heard of pedophilia. So, <laughs> so, so the idea of this being... Was he just a symbol of innocence? I mean, the album was called Boy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there were some lyrics that people questioned as well. Uh, Twilight stories well, for boys, songs like that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a boy meets man in the mm. shadows, which, I mean, I see as being metaphorical. Yeah. And stories for boys is kind of like about a boy who loves comics and heroes and... Yeah, and, that's, that's what I thought it was. And that, that kind of thing. And certainly, as I heard the album at the time, and I remember it, hearing it when I was 16, 17, 18. And, I mean, the thought didn't occur to me in the slightest that there was anything, you know, creepy about it because Mm. the whole album for me was an exploration of childhood by someone who's just turned 18 or 19. (laughs) And which is, that's so peculiar. And and I wonder whether it ties in with the fact that, that Bono's mother had passed away when he was 14 and he had this kind of yearning maybe to go back to the days before his mother's death. That's, I mean, that's something for psychoanalysis rather than for idle kind of chit-chat. But (laughs) the entire post-punk scene was not about explorations of childhood innocence. Mm. It was about kind of like raw, tough, bleak landscapes. So for you two, and this is where the isolation of you two, I think, really came into play. If they'd grown up in London, I wonder if they would be kind of singing about those kind of themes. They would have been singing about unemployment. (laughs) Or the great rubbish strike. Yes. (laughs) The unemptied bins of 76, 77. What are your favourite tracks on the album, apart from the single? Patrick, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of this. In English, it's called The Black Cat. Uh, On Cote d'Ouvre. Yes, there it is. I think the rhythm section of that is classic post-punk. And interestingly, there is a sound of a synth, what sounds like a synth in that song. It's actually a guitar tuner. Remember the guitar tuners? They used to play a tone and you ah, tune to yeah, it. Yeah. The edge was just playing the, the notes of the guitar tuner because they <laughs> didn't have access to a synth. And that song goes into Into the Heart, which I really like. Mm, it kind of reminds yeah, yeah, me a bit yeah. of the Psychedelic Furs Heartbreak Beat. And they haven't really learned how to write songs yet, but it's like little jams or little ideas and Bono singing over the top of them. Still really good, I think. Mm. uh, Where I Love You Too is when they are doing that, the three of them are just creating a little jam, a little uh, oral landscape, I guess. And then Bono comes and sings his bit Mm. over the top of it. I think um, that's when they're at their best, I reckon. Mm. And really unusual twists and turns in the songs as well. They're mm. really unpredictable. So, yeah, they weren't sort of classic song structures by any means. And I like I Will Follow too. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Mark, I thought Out of Control stand? was a good track. How do you feel about the album overall? Yeah, look, I liked it at the time. I mean, I was going to ask you about how, how successful it was. It was sort of 
sort of did pretty well straight away. It was a reasonable hit in Australia, as I recall. It was a bigger hit in Australia than it was in the UK. Mm. So 52 in the UK, 35 in Australia. And um, chart and th- action uh, in America? No, and it only got to number 13 in Ireland, which is, it's like, were there really 12 better albums during the best week of Boy <laughs> in Ireland? Mm. So the lack of loyalty, you know. But yeah, it is a band finding its feet. It does feel like a distinctive sound, despite the influences of, as you say, uh, magazine and public image and so on. And the lyrical concerns of it just put it into a, like a different category altogether. And the thing is, Bono had a distinctive voice. Mm. Beca- I think the band became successful because of him, if I could be so bold. Mm. It was the kind of voice that people were comfortable with, I think. Yeah. And I personally think that it was a major part of their success. People weren't going to accept a, a John Lydon or a Howard DeVoto into the upper echelons of the top 40 charts, whereas... His voice sat comfortably there. It was interesting that uh, you mentioned the Encot Douve, the Black Cat, with a foray into, into Irish, because Bono couldn't actually speak Irish. I mean, Irish was absolutely part of the school syllabus mm. at the time, but Bono met the Queen in 2011 and she spoke Gaelic and Bono had no idea what she was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Which... There's something profound happening in there where the reigning British monarch yes. speaks Irish and the Irishman has no idea what she's saying. Anyway, so that was, yeah. They didn't do a whole lot more Irish in, in no. subsequent years. It, it was just that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Although they did plunder into Latin in the next album. <laughs> well, well, yes, absolutely. So, the next album. One of the striking things about you 2 is the struggles that they had to go through in terms of their spiritual beliefs. Mm. And Bono, Larry and The Edge belonged to a Christian group called Shalom and they were quite evangelical and quite purist. So Bono, for instance, with a Catholic father and a Protestant mother already had interesting kind of religious Mm. influences in his life. And then he thought, you know what, I need a third and a third <laughs> Christian influence in my life, which was this group. And Adam, who had not the slightest interest in, in this stuff, was just looking on in kind of bafflement. It reached a stage in, like, in terms of their commitment to this cause that The Edge announced to Bono that he had to quit the band. Mm. Paul McGuinness, the manager, just the voice of reason said, well, you do have a contractual obligation to do this particular tour that's coming up in the next few weeks. Would God want you to break your contractual obligation? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And and the guys said, you know what, probably God wouldn't. I don't want to be facetious (laughs) about about the spiritual beliefs, but they did seem to cave pretty quickly. quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, God isn't that interested in contractual obligations, I wouldn't have thought. (laughs) But but nonetheless... He wanted to see the fine print. The requirement for you two to play in Denmark was enough to uh, keep the band together. Yeah, and that's when they, um, well, they recorded a single fire. In July 1981, which is... I liked fire. Yeah. uh, Bono said fire was not a good song, (laughs) which is... Pretty striking thing to say. And he said, trying to make it up as you go along doesn't always work. Yeah. But they recorded it in the Bahamas, which is the weirdest thing. So where Well, isn't that 
you know, wasn't Island Records based there mm. or, or uh, what's his yeah, name? Yeah, well, having Blackwell? been signed up by Island and, uh, yeah, they recorded at the Compass Point Studios where Back in Black and all sorts of, of other kind of iconic Mm. Uh, Grace Jones recorded there and, and so on. And then it was into the studio with Steve Lillywhite again in October. Is this the point where Bono had his briefcase stolen? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's or right. was yeah, that a bit yeah, later? Yeah. I just think that's hilarious. Bono had a briefcase stolen. It was full of his lyrics. And it kind of begs the question, <laughs> what kind of rock star carries a briefcase? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's right. So he, he basically had no lyrics for this yeah, yeah. next album. Song titles like, Has Anyone Seen My Briefcase? <laughs> <laughs> if Found, Call This Number. Yeah, that's right. But he did quite well. Like. Well, ironically, apparently 25 years later, the contents of the briefcase were returned to Bono. Oh, really? So And, and he lost them in Seattle, yeah. and they were returned to him in like Cleveland or somewhere. But Bono said that he'd been complaining like endlessly about, like, how am I supposed to write lyrics? You know, like I've, all my lyrics have been stolen. And then, like, years later, he finally got the notebook back and he said that they were little more than hieroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> so it just seemed like, well, were, had you actually done anything or not? Um, what do you guys think about October? Well, October is the only U2 album I ever bought. So I have an emotional attachment to it because I used to play it all the time, mm. whereas I, the other three albums I didn't have. So this is predictably my favourite U2 album of this period. Mm. They're still not writing songs in the in the classical sense. No. But a song like Gloria, which I really love, there's a lot of light and shade on it. And you know how most songs, they kind of build to the chorus, like you know, the enthusiasm builds. Gloria, interestingly, breaks the door down with all <laughs> guns blazing from the very first bar. Then all of a sudden at the chorus, everything kind of pulls back and it's yeah. just him. few other um, harmonics. Singing in Latin. Singing in Latin, yes. <laughs> <laughs> saying, he threw in some Latin, which is, um, I, I guess you could say it's kind of pretentious, but it, it worked. It mm, seemed to work mm. for me. Gloria was the reason why I, uh, I bought the album. I yeah, was dating yeah. someone called Gloria at the time. Um, what I really love about the album is the piano. The Ed started playing piano. I yeah, don't know yeah. how accomplished he was, yeah, but yeah. the piano lines were just gorgeous. In I Fall Down... Song October. And speaking of them wrestling with their Christian beliefs, I read a quote where they said the band members were wrestling with whether being members of a rock band was consistent with their Christian beliefs, which I think is the wrong question. It should have been whether their Christian beliefs were consistent with being in a rock band, because, mm -hmm. you know, in my mind, I imagine them having an absolute ball. But October, the, the title track of the song was kind of about that. And also Scarlet. Mm. Yeah, this is one of those songs that you two do that I really love. It's just kind of a looped drum pattern, a very fluid bass line, some guitar harmonics and uh, kind of sparse piano. And, of course, um, Bono is singing Rejoice because I guess he felt like he needed to sing something. I reckon, yeah, that's, that's where they, they're mm. at their best mm. when they do stuff like that. Uh, Mark, what did you make of October? Yeah, look, it's not as good as I remember it oh, being. Oh, that's interesting. I had this and 
boy on two sides of a cassette just sort of interchangeable but yeah it just sounds kind of hurried a little bit forced Ah. Well, it uh, wasn't successful, or, or they thought it was disappointing, like the, yeah, the response yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, It didn't get great reviews. Yeah. I'm exactly the same. I bought the album, and mm. I hadn't bought Boy, and I absolutely love October. Mm. I'm an aficionado to the nth degree of the Joshua Tree, mm. to the extent we don't need to go too far into it, but I did have a slightly Bono-esque mullet. It was the style at the time. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't called a mullet back in 85, 86, 87, but I was trying pretty hard to look like Bono around about the Joshua Tree period. But yeah, apart from the Joshua Tree, October is, is probably my, the full, the full raccoon. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, October just feels to me like an extended, like a 35 minute jam session with no songs really. Mm. But just the, for me, the passion and the spirit of it and whether or not you relate to the quite specific kind of biblical stuff that is kind of dotted throughout it. And, and Steve Lillywhite said that there were Bibles dotted around the room during the recording. So like literally it was, it was like that. Wow. And when Bono was singing Rejoice, like a hymn, like a prayer, I can see why people might be a little bit kind of affronted by that. Mm. But for me, it just feels kind of inspiring to listen to someone who is so passionate about what they're experiencing at that mm. time. And it was partly an incoherence because he'd lost all his hieroglyphic lyrics. <laughs> um, so, you know, starting again. And it isn't a bunch of songs. Mm. But to me, there is something really compelling about October and... It was before Bono got into full kind of bombastic mode where he was really annoying people. Mm. It was pre-Bono annoyance <laughs> peak. Peak, peak Bono annoyance. Well, do you guys want to move on to war? Because, Mark, you've been pretty quiet so far and I mm. know that you don't like war. Yeah, oh, let's... I like war as a history subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know a lot about war, but uh, you didn't know much about this one? I actually like this better when I listened to it recently. <laughs> so You're ruining I, our storyline. I line. don't really know. <laughs> Just say some bad things about it. <laughs> what's going on there? It's better than I remember. <laughs> I did want to say that apparently the live album and tour of this sorry uh, album was sponsored by Budweiser and the U.S. Army. This is according to Google, so somebody may be playing tricks with us, but. It made me laugh that a tour called War was sponsored by alcohol in the US Army. <laughs> if that's true, that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. This was for the Under a Blood Red Sky live album tour? I suppose so, yeah. The tour yeah. of this album, which came out in February 83, again produced by Steve Lillywhite. Um, yeah, but I'll, you, yeah, you guys go. I'll. Uh... How different does it feel to October to you, like in terms of what the sound they were going for and that kind of thing? I don't know. I mean, I remember being annoyed by it and not really liking it at the time. But, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. Passage of time has changed my opinion on it. New Year's Day is apparently Adam's uh, attempt at playing Fade to Grey. Visage <laughs> song, which I think is interesting. <laughs> because there's nothing like it. No, not really. Um, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, I really didn't like, but I don't mind it now. Yeah. 
know. I'm not really sure. The flag waving sort of really got out of hand. Well, it, it was, was a, the flag waving. It was a lot of woes. Yeah. A lot of, I mm, just remember, mm. yeah, a lot of that at the time. There's a lack of texture in Edge's guitar for me. Though I like liked Drowning Man. I liked uh, Surrender was quite funky. Yep. Uh, Red Light had trumpet on it. From, which is kind of cool. From the coconuts. Yeah. Uh, well, from backing vocals. Kid Creole, Kid Creole coconuts. and the coconuts. Two Hearts <laughs> Beat is one featured backing vocals from the Kid Creole's coconuts. Mm. Who were, um, they were touring Ireland at the time. Mm. An interviewer at one point asked him, you know, where they got the coconuts from because Ireland is temperate and the coconuts <laughs> are tropical. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Monty Python reference. No, that there. definitely works. I'll, I will take that out. <laughs> no, that, that's a keeper. <laughs> um, Graham, what did you make of it? Was a, it was a big hit. That's all I should mm. say as well. It, yeah, yeah. So it was. What it's do we know? Number one in the UK. It looks mm. like each album got mm. more and more successful. As and number 12 on. in the US. It knocked Thriller off number one in the UK. In the UK, yeah. <laughs> so that's how big it was. Interestingly, there's a song on the album called Seconds and uh, The Edge sings the first two stanzas. Which I didn't realise at the time, but going back and listening to it now, it's like, oh yeah, it is a different voice. But what surprises me is that he sounds really close to Bono. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sound really similar and yeah. that's kind of why I think their voices work well together. Like when he does a harmony, it's almost like Bono's harmonising with himself when you hear it live. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford from Squeeze. They sound completely different and when Chris Difford sings a harmony, you can kind of hear his voice under there. Yeah. But yeah. with the Edge and Bono, it's like seamless yeah. how well their voices work together. I like New Year's Day. Drowning Man, by the way, do you know Rick Beato? Has, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you seen this video? I've seen the episode of Rick, Rick Beato where he is um, dissecting yeah, the song he, Drowning Man, which is, which is fascinating. He has a YouTube uh, channel. He's a great guy and he's really passionate about music and he does this great dismantling of the song Drowning Man. Um, he's, a, he's actually going on about how great the uh, melody is mm. but the interesting thing is like the drums are in 4-4 four, four, but the bass line is in 6-4 yeah. and when Bono comes in with the vocals he comes in on the 3 so it's really difficult to work out where yeah. the 1 is yeah, you know, yeah. where the beginning of the bar is but yeah I recommend our listeners to go and have a listen to that it's a really mm. good episode yeah, yeah. The Refugee, to me, sounds like Wild Wild West by The Escape Club, if you remember that song. That's a big call. That came a bit later. And the last song, 40, which became a live staple of theirs. Mm. Adam Clayton apparently didn't play on the song. I think uh, The Edge played guitar yeah, and yeah. bass. And also, I've, I missed Sunday Bloody Sunday, but that they started to hone their songwriting skills, I think, on this album mm. because that is a standard song in the classical sense, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think The Edge may have written that or may have come up with it. He came up with the initial idea and he wanted to do a kind of an anti-terrorism song. Yeah. And then Bonner obviously ran with that with the lyrics. But it was quite controversial for someone in the Republic of Ireland to be saying, as Bono did in the live at Red Rocks, to say this is not a rebel song. Mm. In other words, this is not a pro-IRA song. 
mm. which kind of makes it seem like a pro-establishment song yeah. by default, by default yeah. or pro-British. And it's the kind of topic where if you're Irish, you'd probably be much safer keeping your mouth shut. Mm. Yeah. And there were security issues for him later on. He was advised that his wife, Ali, you know, might be in some kind of danger because of Jesus. his stance or because of the band's stance with this stuff. So it was a hardcore time mm. around then. People were getting blown up and it was serious business. But, you know, they felt that they had to kind of speak out about that. So the waving the white flag thing, it was you two have always been or after the first two albums were always about outsized gestures, stadium-sized gestures. And mm. Bono has always been extremely annoying to a lot of people because he's so big and grandiose. But the white flag thing was a really brave thing to do mm. because it was him saying, I don't want to be a part of this violent movement, that mm. violence isn't the way to achieve things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I love Sunday Bloody Sunday and Drowning Man and the song 40 I really love, as you say, from Psalm 40. I think they, on the morning, their last morning in the studio, there was a band coming in that day, so they had to vacate the studio. And at six or seven in the morning, they were in the studio and they thought, oh, we've still got to write one more song. It's not quite a finished album. And the next band that was going to be recording arrived at like six or seven a.m. Mm. on the day. <laughs> not very rock and roll. And they, like, you two still want to write one more song. So Bonus says, how about Psalm 40 for the, <laughs> for the lyrics? And they've kind of cobbled together something from like a recording they'd been doing previously. In two hours, they wrote 40 from, you know, like seven in the morning to, to nine in the morning. <laughs> and it became this kind of, as you say, staple and, you know, yeah, like um, the kind of classic U2 song. Yeah, the, the, in a way. the audience sing along with the, the, yeah, final, yeah, that's the right. final line. Yeah. I like war, but I don't love war. I think it's got some real kind of classic kind of B-sides mm. on its songs that were kind of just not that great or half-finished yeah. or whatever. And I liked the album at the time, but I didn't love it. I was a bit disappointed by it, actually, after October, which I loved. But probably worth mentioning with New Year's Day, the fact that it was a song that was in some ways inspired by Lech Valenza, the Polish um, solidarity movement leader. And Poland at the time was under martial law and Valencia was in jail. So Bono wrote this song, New Year's Day, and after they finished the song, it was announced that martial law would end on New Year's Day in Poland. <laughs> Quite the coincidence. that he actually wrote a song about his wife and then changed it. Yeah, I think he, he has described the song, Bono, as being lyrically a bit of a mess. When he says nothing changes on New Year's Day, mm. as in with each successive year, things are pretty much the same. I don't know whether, whether he initially thought that about his wife, saying, you know, I, I feel this about you at this point and it's New Year's Day and I still right, feel, yeah, I still yeah, feel yeah, the same yeah, about yeah. you. That actually is, I think, is a great idea for a song anyway. Yeah, yeah, Whether yeah. it's about 
a relationship or the Polish resistance movement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a mixture of the two. Or the mixture and of the two, yeah. Bono had met his wife, Alison Stewart, at school and I believe they're still together today. They're still together, yeah. I remember seeing you two in 1987 in Dublin and at a certain point this absolutely beautiful woman kind of walks on stage in mm. a, like a elegant kind of ball gown sort of thing and Bono kind of turned to the crowd and said, imagine being married to that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was his wife, Alison, Ellie. <laughs> and so, yeah, she's a, a formidable person in her own right as mm. well. So. So, shall we go on to something a bit more unforgettable? Well, there was the Under a Blood Red Sky live album that came out in November 83, and that got to, like, number two in the UK, and I think it just really kind of cemented their status as the next big arena act and, again, annoyed the hell out of a lot of people because Mm. it was such a grandiose kind of thing and they were trying to kind of claim a pretty big space. Mm. So, Mark? That sounds about right. Did that annoy you? What you just said? No. no, (laughs) The way he said it? Something about my intonation? I agree with you. (laughs) On the 1st of October, 84, they changed producers. Yes. Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois. And apparently yes. Brian Eno was a bit resistant to, to be a, a part yeah, of Yeah, he said he'd, he'd retired, didn't mm. want to work with rock bands. He'd been doing a lot of like ambient-type music. He'd recently done an album, Apollo, with Daniel Lanois, which mm. is um, atmospheric and echoey and ambient. I was a huge fan of Apollo and of everything that Eno did during the ambient era, and I love Remain in Light, Talking mm. Heads. And so I was really excited to hear what he might do with... U2 and U2 toured Australia for the first time in September 84 so Mm. after they'd recorded the album but before it was released so I was it was a great kind of privilege to hear the album Mm. before you heard what Eno was going to put on top of it because obviously it's not going to have the album production in the live the live show the unforgettable fire tour as you say started in New Zealand yeah yeah came over here and I saw them in Brisbane and yeah. it was huge. It was huge, yeah. 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 You, you could see they were going to be a big band. I did read something where they were saying that their tour, particularly uh, of Australia, I think, where they did five shows in Melbourne and five in Sydney, both at venues that held about 10,000 people. Mm. And it was their first experience of, so this is actually what's going to happen now. Mm. Yeah. So that was the first <laughs> full... This um, is where we are now. ...full arena thing. And, I mean, the Live at Red Rocks show was not to a massive audience for instance, like the crowd I think might have been like a couple of thousand or It so. was because of the weather, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot was, of people didn't. Like a cyclone yeah. hit <laughs> in the hours. So like, a lot of people didn't go. But yeah, but... Due to some clever camera angles, it made it look <laughs> yeah. like there were a lot of people there. But I don't think the venue holds a massive number of people anymore. I might be wrong about that, but, mm. but yeah, I think in Australia, like to play to 50,000 people in Melbourne, 50,000 people in Sydney, mm. and I remember it as being pretty big. Yeah. Bono's hair had got unfeasibly long <laughs> by that stage. Bono said, you can talk about a bad hair day, I was having a bad hair life. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the thing about Bono overall, that he is both extraordinarily self-deprecating mm. and extraordinarily unironic. He can say something which is either taking the mickey out of himself or being deadly serious. Mm. So at one point when U2 came up with an album in the late 90s, he said U2 are reapplying for the job of the biggest band in the world. 
And he might be joking <laughs> or he might be absolutely <laughs> deadly absolutely serious. serious. And you wouldn't know. At the time they were recording The Unforgettable Fire, there was a documentary made about it. It's on YouTube. Speaking about what Bono has to say, at the beginning of the doco he says, I believe that the songs are already written. The less you get in the way of it, the better. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, to me, this was the beginning of when he started saying things which uh, (laughs) which were a little little bit annoying. (laughs) So you hadn't found him annoying prior to that point? No, no, to tell the truth. I hadn't gotten onto that wagon. Well, well, they weren't big enough, probably. I mean, they were very, very earnest, let's say, the first couple of albums in particular, and then war started, like they started getting bigger, like they've had their first top ten hit, that kind of thing. Yeah. So what what did you make of Unforgettable Fire? Uh, Well, first of all, it was recorded at Slane Castle in Ireland, so they were recording. They had a lot of... In a big ballroom. In a big ballroom, so the, the album has a lot of that live, open feeling to it. It has pride in the name of love. Which was a big hit for them. And I didn't realise this until recently that Chrissy Hines sings backing vocals on it, which I had no idea. The Unforgettable Fire, the um, title track, apparently came from uh, The Edge composing stuff with Jimmy Destry from Blondie. I noticed that Jimmy Destry doesn't get a songwriting credit on it, so <laughs> that maybe kind of removed his parts altogether. But I like The Unforgettable Fire. Fourth of July is kind of an instrumental ambient track, and as I've already said, I really like it when you two do this kind of thing. Yeah. And having Brian Eno behind the, the board only made it even better. And Bad, which is one of their most popular songs. Apparently, Brian Eno added a sequence of arpeggios to Bad, but I can't hear them. Ah, no, When, no, when no. I have a listen to the song, I can't, I can't That's hear interesting. it. I think this album peters out a bit. I didn't like the last three songs so um, mm, Elvis uh, Presley in America I think the song the album starts off strong mm. but it just kind of peters out so once again not one of my favourites Mark what did you think of it? Um, yeah look I've actually bought Pride the single at the time I really liked it mm. it's got a lot more texture it's a lot more restrained it's got space in it that I like I think Wire is a great track very Remain in Light The track 4th of July has this kind of bass note mistake on it that I really like. It sounds like he's gone to the wrong note, but they've kept it in there. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't on any bandwagon for or against them at the time, really. I didn't really notice them, but I really liked that song, uh, Pride, a lot. And the album I liked was number one in the UK, number one in Australia, Mm. number 12 in the US. That was pretty massive. Um, Yeah, yeah. Listening to it again recently, I thought, I wrote, is this album responsible for Coldplay? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know Well could be because Coldplay actually play The Unforgettable Fire, the song They play that live So um, Could be What did you think, Pat? Uh I was slightly disappointed I, I think my expectations Because I was a big fan of U2 I was a 
even bigger fan of Eno and I thought just what extraordinary kind of genius are they going to come up with? And it just felt kind of slightly muted to me overall that there were like washes of reverb on things and and just felt a little bit indistinct in some ways and maybe the songs weren't great. Bono said that the lyrics weren't really finished. I think they're caught a little bit between the ambient kind of Eno world and the kind of rock world and for me like the title track I remember hearing it live prior to hearing the recorded version and the kind of keyboard melody is really prominent and is I think fantastic like really simple but really yeah great but the recorded version the melody is really quiet and it's kind of buried under a murk Mm. of probably DX7 ambience. That, to me, kind of exemplified the issue that I had with the album, which I like certain songs. I mean, Bad, I really like, mm. apart from the occasional Depeche Mode-type desperation, uh, <laughs> exasperation, uh, you know, the, well, like the unnecessary rhyming. <laughs> I think Bono talks about the fact that that lyric was particularly unfinished. The album does contain a factual error, which Bono oh, is yes. extremely embarrassed about, which is that Martin Luther King didn't actually die in the morning. It was, I think, uh, late afternoon or early evening, mm. and he corrects that in, in live shows. I thought they would have gone back and changed the history books to fit in with Bono. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I did like what The Edge said about the production team, and he said that if Brian, you know, it was a grumbler of the highest order of Suffolk grumblers... Danny brought, Daniel Lenoir brought an intensity to the record that maybe even surpassed our own. Various parts of Slane Castle felt the rough end of Danny's boot and there were times we all (laughs) feared a piece of recording equipment might go through one of the castle's 18th century stained glass windows. (laughs) (laughs) So you think of Eno and and Lenoir, or certainly I do, as being very dignified individuals, but apparently uh, not so much. Mm. I really like uh, MLK, so a song that you're not a huge fan of, the last track. Mm. Uh, sleep tonight and may your dream be realised I think is a really kind of lovely sentiment Sleep tonight And may your dreams Be realised Oh don't get me wrong I'm not anti Martin Luther King <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't think mm. the song was that great Hints of racism will just <laughs> <laughs> That was the gateway album to there was a real clarity to what was to follow with you two mm. with the Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree, yeah. Um, and I guess we're coming to the end of our journey with mm. with you two with these first four albums. And so, how would you how would you guys sum up that journey from seventy what seventy six or whatever to eighty four? Well, they were a post punk band with their eyes on a bigger prize, I think. Mm. And I guess they knew that um, following the road to coolness but ultimate obscurity I guess that that wasn't how they were going to take over the world and I think where they wound up was no surprise to anyone Hmm. It's really about Bono and The Edge I suppose ultimately I don't actually rate The Edge that that highly as a guitarist in in this upper echelon uses a lot of effects and a lot of simple kind of harmonic stuff I mean you feel like you could replicate a lot of what he's doing not that it's bad but people Hmm. rave about his guitar and I think it's it's interesting, but it's nothing fantastic. I wouldn't put it with Charlie Birchall or Andy Gill or Robert Smith or Andy Summers, John McGee or people like that. Yeah, look, a lot of talk is about Bono, not really the music, which is the interesting part, and I don't know whether that's right or fair on, on the band. But they've sold 175 million records, so, you know, <laughs> hey, what does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Patrick, you should really sum up their, uh, their influence. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that you had four school kids at Mount Temple Comprehensive in Dublin in 1975, 76, they're still together now. Mm. It's interesting you, you describe you two in terms of Edge and Bono because to me they feel like four distinct and really important elements and the drumming of Larry feels kind of crucial to me. He wasn't a great drummer the first couple of albums, Adam had some amazing bass lines uh, as well on those those songs. New Year's Day, you know, he managed to get Fade to Grey sufficiently wrong that he came up with a really good bass line of his own. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah what, what he landed on was really good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, yeah, so for those four boys at school together, the journey that they went on on those first four albums, they're all really interesting albums and the lyrical concerns evolve from the very personal to the absolutely kind of grandiose and political and dangerous. The music evolved. They were always looking to kind of do something different. And, you know, after war, for instance, they could have chosen to do something bigger and more anthemic in the way that their their friends at Simple Minds chose to do, whereas they went kind of more internalised. I think overall, the journey that they went on on those four albums, leaving aside the fact that they would become you too <laughs> later on it was a fascinating journey to that point and in the teaser video you did graham where you know joking about them having evaporated uh, <laughs> after those albums it would have been a worthy career in and of itself mm-hmm.